Thank you, Dave and Carolyn, Dave Barrier, as well as uh, Mitchell and Carol Ann. I, I told, last time Carolyn sang, I said, Miss Carolyn, I could hear you sing all day. And uh, so thankful for, uh, for their message and song. Let's uh, turn together to the book of John, Gospel of John. If you're in first through third grade, you can slip out to uh, our children's church at this time. The rest of us are turning to the Gospel of John in chapter 3. For evening service tonight, we will receive a report from T. Granagamalian, who's one of our missionaries. He'll be here with his family to give a report on what God's doing on the mission field. So I'd invite you to our prayer meeting at 5 o'clock and then to hear that report at 6. We're back in the Gospel of John in chapter 3. We'll look there together this morning. Our passage begins uh, in verse 22, and we'll go down through verse 30. Let's look there together. I'll read the passage, and we'll ask the Lord's blessing. John chapter 3, begin reading in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put into prison. Now discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing, and all are going to him. And John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Heavenly Father, as we look at your word, would you grant insight? Help us to understand what your scripture is saying that we may apply it to our lives and thus have a greater understanding of your character and grow to be more like you as we pray through the name of Jesus. Amen. In the areas of math and science, there's a relationship between two entities and the way that these variables interact with each other. And that relationship is called an inverse relationship. I'll give you an illustration of three. The most common uh, example of an inverse relationship is something that is seen on most children's playgrounds called a seesaw. Many of you have been on a seesaw, and unless you had some devious intent like I usually did to hurt the other person, they would just go up and down nicely. If you're really unkind, perhaps you'd jump and try to send the other person into outer space. I remember very specifically brother with my brother one time the phrase hey let's try something and then it ended up with somebody being hurt very badly right with a seesaw in order for one to go up the other must go down both can't go up at the same time thus we have what's referred to as an inverse relationship a goes up b goes down b goes up a goes down you actually see this reflected all around you i'll give you an illustration another illustration If you are driving from here to Indianapolis, some of you can go much quicker than others, right? In fact, there's an inverse relationship with 
your speed and the time that it takes to get there. The faster you go, the less time it will take you to get to Indianapolis. Some of you, I've heard, can get there in as little as an hour and 35 minutes, which is unbelievable to me, right? Um, The slower you go, the longer it takes. I'll give you another one. We've been experiencing this in our economy. Inflation and the value of currency have an inverse relationship. As inflation goes up, though the value of the dollar in your wallet goes down. It's an inverse relationship. They both can't go up because of the way that they relate to each other. As one goes up, so the other must go down. It's an inverse relationship. John reveals to us in this passage that there is an inverse relationship between the way that you view yourself and the way that you view God. As your view of God increases, as you have a higher view of God, thus you must have a lower view of yourself. And as your view of yourself gets higher, thus your view of God must get lower. It's an inverse relationship in your view of God and self. You cannot have a high view of God and a high view of yourself. It's impossible. And you cannot have a low view of God and a low view of yourself in regards to Scripture. John the Baptist serves as an example for us this morning of ultimate biblical humility. Let's look down at verse 30 and begin at his conclusion. He must increase, I must decrease. What is humility? Humility is putting God in his proper place and recognizing that as your view of God increases and as you view God appropriately, so your view of yourself decreases and you have an appropriate view of yourself. Ultimate humility is being so wrapped up in God that yourself just fades into the background. Seeing God as increasing and yourself as decreasing is the ultimate view of humility. And before we begin this passage, I want to clarify something. Seeing yourself decreasing is not consistently focusing on yourself and how bad you are because that's still a focus on yourself. Humility is not saying, I'm so bad, I'm so terrible, I'm the worst. Humility is saying, God is so good. God is amazing. It's all about God, and I'm so wrapped up in God that I don't even have time to think about myself as self fades into the background. So our text begins at verse 22. We'll walk through this passage with the culmination, the focus being at the end. But before we do, I want to make a note that this is the last time that we will see the testimony of John the Baptist in this gospel. John goes out with a bang here in verses 22 to 30. Let's look at the setting. What is the setting of this passage? It's found in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. 
The way that this is framed is the land of Judea, but the reference is that Jesus is going out to the rural parts of the land of Judea. He's going out into the wilderness or the countryside, into the rural part of Judea. And it was here that Jesus remained with his disciples in this rural area, and there they were ministering to each other and with each other. There's a, there's a, a, a reference here that he remained there with them and then also was baptizing. It's as though Jesus went away with his disciples, some people think for as many as six months, just with his disciples to teach them, to, to reveal himself to them, to show them the scriptures, that he went away with them and then also opened up and was ministering to others. As others came out to be ministered by Christ, these people were being baptized. Two clarifying points here. We need to understand what this baptism was, and we need to understand who was baptizing. So what was this baptism? This baptism that the disciples were participating in with these people who would show up was not a baptism like we would administer it today, as in a confession of Christ as Messiah, a confession of Christ as King and as Lord, and based on that confession, we then make a public confession of Christ by baptism by immersion. You've been saved spiritually, and to picture that, you are baptized, buried with him in the likeness of his death, and then raised to walk in newness of life as we participate here at community and as we view baptism by immersion in that way. This was baptism by immersion, but this was kind of an elementary form of the baptism that we participate in today. You could call this one of two things. You could call this a baptism of repentance or a baptism of purification, either one. It was an immersion into water and a signifying that they came out different. They were walking away from the legalistic Judaism they were currently participating in. And when they came out of the water, it was a statement saying, I am now following Jesus of Nazareth. He is teaching something different than I am being taught by the Pharisees. And so I am being baptized and repenting and being purified from my past belief into what I'm following now, Jesus is constantly revealing himself as the replacement or the purification of what was there. Remember we talked about the water to wine episode, and we kept saying it's not about the wine. It's the fact that Jesus put, the, put his wine in the purification pots, that he is saying the purification that you offer is incomplete. It needs to be replaced by the wine of truth. And so Jesus has this constant picture of being replaced, of replacing the false views of the legalistic Judaism that was present at that day and being baptized into the truth, repenting from the truth. If we don't read carefully, we may see also at the end of verse 22, he remained there with them and was baptizing. Jesus was not actually the one doing the baptizing. How do we know that? Look down in your Bibles at chapter 4 and verse 1. 
Now, when Jesus learned the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, verse 2, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. Why? Because he, wanted, he didn't want to communicate that somehow a baptism performed by Jesus was superior than a baptism performed by someone else. Well, you got baptized by Peter. I got baptized by Jesus, you know? I'm a little bit of a better Christian than you are. Or I truly repented, and I'm, I'm a real follower of Jesus. And so we look at this, we need to picture in our minds the disciples of Jesus baptizing out of legalistic, pharisaical Judaism the works of the law into following Christ. Look at verse 23. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because the water was plentiful there. So John, now that's not, we are reading the Gospel of John. This is not the author of the Gospel of John. This is John the Baptist. John was also participating in this same baptism. People were coming out. They were coming away from the legalistic Judaism that was being taught. They were coming out of the city into the wilderness, picturing they're coming out of that viewpoint. They were entering into following Jesus to show their repentance. They were being washed and being cleansed of their past. And so John the Baptist was also baptizing. I'd like you to look at that little note in the middle of verse 23 because the water was plentiful there. We baptize by immersion not because of tradition, but because I believe the Bible evidence is clear that if this was a sprinkling or a pouring, the water did not need to be plentiful. But in order to be baptized by immersion, they were to, have, they were to find a place in which there were large bodies of water to be immersed. People were flocking to John where he had positioned himself up north, where the water was plentiful because he was preaching a gospel of repentance. They were coming and being baptized. Look at verse 24. For John had not yet been put into prison. You're like, hey, why, would, why would the apostle say that? Because it's kind of obvious, right, that if he says he's in Anon, near Salim, and he's baptizing. Of course he's not in prison because he's near Salim baptizing. John the Apostle is writing this to put it in chronological order that no, the other, um, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, don't record this account. And John is saying, listen, I didn't just make this up. This happened before he went into prison. It's just a little note there of the chronological events of what's happening. Okay, so now that we have that background, now that you understand what's going on, here's where it's happening. Jesus is baptizing in the south. John is baptizing up north. They're both administering the same baptism, Jesus through his disciples. John the Baptist baptizing his followers. That's the setting of what's about to happen. Now we know that. Let's look at this issue that comes up in verse 25. Now a discussion arose. Let me ask you a question couples. Have you ever had a discussion with your spouse? It was, you know, it's not really an argument, but uh, there's a discussion that needs to happen. This is a nice way of saying in verse 25 that the disciples of John 
and the disciples of Jesus had an argument. There's a fight. There's an argument that's happening. There's contention between these two groups. There's an argument between, verse 25, some of John's disciples and a Jew. Now, we don't know who this Jew was. Somebody, probably, who had been baptized by Christ or baptized by the disciples under the the, the view or under the authority of Christ. Or it could be somebody trying to stir up some problems. There's a discussion that's arising between a Jew and the disciples of John over, look at the end of verse 25, the argument was over purification. It was over the baptism. That's what this baptism is. He's equating the baptism of purification, purifying from the past into following Christ, a ceremonial purification, a picture. This argument was over the baptisms. And if you read carefully, you'll notice that the disciples of John are worked up just a little bit. You can read into the language here. The, the translation has done a really good job of communicating this language of an argument. They don't use Jesus' name. They come to John and they say, Rabbi, that guy who was with you across the Jordan, do you remember him? He who was with you across the Jordan, the one that you point at and said, Behold the Lamb of God and who takes away the sins of the world, the one that you baptized... That guy, they don't even use Jesus' name. They reference that he's doing the exact same thing that John is doing. So much so that John is called the baptizer, John the baptizer. That guy who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, remember that guy? Look, he is baptizing. He's doing the same thing that you're doing. And then they make an exaggerated statement. All are going to him. He's doing the same thing you're doing, and they're all going over to him. And I think it's appropriate that we have a rivalry in this passage on Rivalry Weekend in South Bend, right? And we can talk about that because for most of us, you know, it was, it was a good weekend. There's a rivalry here. The disciples of John... And this, this Jew who most commentators would agree, and I would agree as well, that the way this is phrased, I think it's probably someone who was discipled by or, or, or uh, baptized by the disciples of Jesus. They're kind of instigating each other. And John's disciples are getting really frustrated. They're envious. We know they're envious because of the way they exaggerate that last phrase, all are going to him. Perhaps Jesus is attracting more people than John and the people that used to come out to hear John teach because he was the weirdo in the wilderness, right? He had camel hair and was eating locusts and honey, living in the wilderness. You know, who knows what he looked like? Who knows what he smelled like? proclaiming wrath and repentance. And the crowds that used to flock to John are all of a sudden flocking to Jesus. The disciples of John are getting nervous. Are we losing everything? 
We used to have large crowds, not so much anymore. People used to come out and say, where is John? And now they're saying, where is, Je- is Jesus? And the way that this is phrased, it is obvious that they are showing envy. Envy. What is envy? Envy is looking on something that someone else has and being angry because you don't have that same thing. Now, we immediately run to possessions normally. They have a bigger house, a car that actually works, clothes that don't have holes in them, you know, a husband who actually takes care of himself, a wife who doesn't nag, all that kind of stuff, you know. But this could be, a pos- envy can be in reference to a possession, but it can also be referencing an experience. You know what that's like on social media, to pull up pictures of someone else's vacation when you just had to fix something in your car and your vacation fund just went out the window, and here they're posting pictures, and obviously their family's perfect, because all of them are smiling, and it just looks like the perfect scene. And they don't tell you how long it took them to get that perfect picture, Right? but you're envying their experience. They get to experience this, and I don't. I want to go there. I want to do that. Or maybe you're envying their lack of experience. They don't have to, they don't have to put up with what I have to put up with physically. If only I could walk well, I could do that too. Maybe you envy a person. I want to be that. It could be Notoriety. People think well of that person. They don't think well of me. I used to have respect and I don't anymore. Popularity. Everybody knows that person's name. Nobody knows my name. Or even the, the twisted nature of our, of our sinful flesh even the fruit of, of good things, like the fruit of ministry. I've witnessed, and I've never led anyone to the Lord, and that person witnesses, and they've led like five people to the Lord this month. I wish they'd just shut up. You know? How come that church is growing and our church is shrinking? They, may be, they must be doing something wrong. I mean, if they're going that fast, I bet they're like doing bad stuff at that church. It's envy. It's seeing something that you desire and then being angry because you don't have that. Envy. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, For while there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human or acting in a way that is not spiritual? What then is, an Apollo, what the, is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, 
and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. It all is about God. It centers around God. This fighting and dissension that is, that is so prevalent with envy. It comes out of selfish ambition. It comes because I want something. It comes because I'm focused on me. James 3, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from above. Where there is envy, there is a lack of truth. It's earthly, unspiritual, demonic, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder and every evil, vile practice. But the wisdom that is from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, sincere. Friends, take whatever you're looking at and run it by that and see if it's wisdom from above. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Envy has always driven a wedge and destroyed the people of God if kept unchecked. It is because of envy, according to Genesis chapter 30, it is because of envy that Rachel hated Leah because Leah could have children and Rachel couldn't. And this set the example of strife and contention for the whole family. Envy. In Acts chapter 7 and verse 9, the apostles clarify for us that it was envy that drove the sons of Jacob to sell Joseph into slavery. Envy. Somebody has something you want, whatever that is. Experience, health, age, whatever it is. And it drives you to anger. And whether that's an explosive anger or a clamming up, it's sinful envy. Matthew chapter 27, verse 18. It was because of their envy that the Jewish leadership killed Jesus. They saw that he had a following and they were envious, and so they killed him. Because if they didn't kill him, they were afraid he was going to ruin everything that they had set up. Friends, listen carefully. Envy destroys a person and destroys relationships. Friendships have been destroyed because one person got something the other person wanted. Teenagers, be very careful to break off friendships in school because someone else made the basketball team and you didn't. Or someone else got that friendship and you didn't. Or someone else won that award and you didn't. Envy destroys relationships. John's disciples were envious of the way that Jesus' ministry was growing and people were leaving John and following Jesus. All are going to him. Come on, John. Step it up, man. Every other church is growing. We gotta change our methods. We gotta change the way we do everything. Everybody's leaving. John's disciples actually kind of locked down, and some of them so much that they refused to even 
welcomed Jesus into their following. They became followers of a person rather than followers of truth. We see this in Acts chapter 19, where the apostles show up and they find people who are still following the baptism of John. And some of them, when they're told about the baptism of Jesus, were like, oh, I didn't even know that existed. And others continue to just follow John. Anybody, and, and, I, and I think I can use that broad of a term, very rarely do we want to say all, right? But, but to the best of my knowledge, I think we can use this accurately in here and say anybody who's trying to garner a following of themselves is diminishing God. And that remember, we've said John the Baptist served as a giant, you know, those cheesy signs with the light bulbs that blink and point that way. That was John the Baptist. Jesus is there. He's the Lamb of God, not me. So they tell John, John, what's going on, man? Everyone is leaving. This guy, we had a good thing going, and then this guy had to show up and just ruin it. What's John's answer? Look down at verse 27. Everybody look in your Bibles at verse 27. John answered in several ways. There are several phrases through here. We're going to pick them apart. He gives, as any good preacher does, three points, right? John answered. Number one, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. We will call this John's divine directive. Now there's some discussion in this passage, whether he's talking about Jesus or whether he's talking about himself. I think he's talking about himself here because the rest of it's talking about himself as well. John says, I can't receive even one thing unless it's given to me from heaven. In other words, I don't own this ministry. I am a steward of this ministry. Everything that I have has been given to me by God. It's his divine directive. Ministry John is not about you. He recognized that his assignment was given to him by God. Anything that we have in our lives was given to us by God. 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 7, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? Friend, everything in your life is a gift from God. We are stewards James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Everything that you have belongs to God and has been entrusted to you as a steward. John recognized that his responsibility to baptize was to point people to Jesus. John, again, was the arrow to point people to the Lamb of God. They said, John, everyone's leaving and following that guy. And John says, exactly. That's kind of the point. They're pointing to Jesus. Friend, your responsibility is to recognize that the directive that God has given you whether it's in a support role or a leadership role, whatever that is, God has ordained for you to point people to Jesus. That whether you serve a role in the church 
Whether you're single, whether you're a wife or a husband, whether you're a mother or father, whether you're a grandparent, whatever it is, your responsibility has been given to you by God and it li- the, the responsibility lies in pointing people to Christ through that avenue, a divine directive. Secondly, a divine focus. Look at verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness. You heard me say this. I am not the Christ. He's like having to remind them. You can bold that. Underline it. Why are people going out to see Jesus? Because I am not the Christ. I point people to him. I have been sent before him to prepare people to receive Jesus. I'm not the Christ. His role was to align under Jesus. Now, remember, Jesus is John's cousin, and he's younger than John. I mean, how difficult, in a physical sense, would this have been for John to say it this way? I was here first. I was preaching first. But yet, I'm here to prepare for something to come after me. I am pointing to Jesus and a divine joy, a divine joy. A divine directive, a divine focus, and a divine joy. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. John says, that's not me. I'm not the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, we'd call that the best man, who stands and hears him, rejoices. He rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. I recently, I recently had the opportunity to, to uh, be in my brother's wedding back in August. What's the responsibility of the best man? My dad stood in as the best man of that wedding. What's the responsibility there? Is it to usurp the groom? No. Like, what happens if the best man is drawing all the attention for himself? All of us would think, what is that guy's problem? The responsibility of the best man is to be the first person to celebrate the groom as he joins the bride in marriage. And John the Baptist says, listen, Christ is the groom, his people are his bride, and I get the joy of playing the part of the best man. In in the Hebrew culture, the best man kind of served as the organizer of the wedding. It was the responsibility of the best man to, to organize the festivities that led up to the bridegroom and the bride seeing each other for the first time. Of going and actually getting the bride and marching her to the groom and then getting the groom, and either, depending on, on the historical country read, either waiting with the bride as the groom comes in and the groom announces that he's here, or going and bringing the bridegroom, and to let out the first cheer when the bridegroom says, I'm finally here, and he goes, He's here, let's commence with the wedding. And it's the best man's responsibility to be the number one cheerleader of the bride and the groom. So God has given here 
a picture of how we are to celebrate around Christ and the church. Romans chapter 12 says, we rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. You know, Mark of Humility is someone who can generally find joy in the joy of others. Of someone who can say, man, that must be nice. I'm so happy for you, and they mean it. Like their joy that mirrors your joy is legitimate, and they're truly excited for you. What does this look like in, in, in relationships? It looks like you, um, someone else that you know, getting some, something or, or someone or, or a status or a promotion or whatever that you desire, and rather than being filled with envy and being like, man, I hope he blows it when that job comes up because I wanted that, you're genuinely excited for him. That you're genuinely excited for her to step forward into that role. What does it look like in our local church? It looks like championing others. 1 Corinthians 12 gives us a beautiful picture of what this humility looks like in, in our local church. If one member suffers, all suffer together. What does envy say when you suffer? Ha, got you good. What was coming to you? What does humility say? Well, you suffer. I'm suffering with you. I'm sharing that burden. When one member is honored, all rejoice together. So maybe you can't sing like someone else, or you can't serve like someone else, or you can't lead like someone else. Rejoice that that person can. That you share in the joy of others. Let's go a step further and ask, what does this look like for the relationship between local churches? What does this look like? Friend, we should be praying, and we do publicly, and I hope you do privately, that the Lord would bless the churches in the Michiana area. Like, how do we respond when we hear that our dear brother or sister in Christ that goes to another gospel-preaching church, man, they just had 20 or 30 people join, and we just had 20 or 30 people move away. Oh, like, is that a gut punch for you? Or that, man, they're $500,000 over budget. Look at their incredible facilities. And they have no problems. And their pastor never ages. And he gets everything right. And he makes everyone happy. Right? That's obviously that church. I wish they burned to the ground. You know, or whatever. You know? Like, how do you, how do you respond to that? When another church loses a pastor... Do you think, yeah, finally, maybe we'll get some more people, you know? And when they're going through hardship and suffering, do we go through that with them? And do we pray for restoration and reconciliation? Do we pray that God would provide a shepherd who would guide and direct that church and that that church would grow? I got news for you, friends. There's more ministry in South Bend than there are gospel preaching churches. We need more, and we need the ones that are here to be thriving and growing. And this is not a competition. We have to remember that. Pride says, yeah, go visit those other churches, but when you get back, you'll see how it's done right. Humility says, hey, you're new to the area. There are so many great churches. I'll give you a list of five 
You should visit around in whichever one feels like home, whichever one you feel like you're growing in, whichever one when you walk in, you think this is where I need to be. That's where you need to plug in. And if you need help, let me know. I've got friends who are in all these churches. Humility. Sometimes we act like the people who we're going to be worshiping with side by side for all of eternity on this earth, they're the enemy. Let me tell you something that I found. This isn't in my notes. I'm going to go a little bit on a rabbit trail. Just a little, little shepherding moment here, okay? You know what I've noticed in ministries as the leadership ages? Is that early on, it seems like everything's worth dividing over. And at the end of their ministry, they're trying to make amends with their other older pastors that they realized in the end were just their friends. And they're just different on some things. I didn't notice this until my dad actually pointed out about six or seven months ago when there was something that happened in broader Christendom that actually brought two Christian pastors together who had been like on separate sides of a theological nuance for a while and decided it was worth dividing over. And then all of a sudden, as they aged in their ministries, they were reconciled. And as my dad, who had pastored for 21 years and now does church consulting, he made a side comment that really hit me. He's like, man, what would have happened if they just would have never separated in the first place? If there had been enough humility, I'm not casting stones, I'm just saying if there had been enough humility to recognize that on some things, it's okay to have a different viewpoint and we all embrace the gospel, right? The Apostles' Creed. And what Scripture spells out clearly, we need to embrace clearly and confidently. But on matters of application of those doctrines, where we may apply it differently because of culture or area of the country or whatever, it's okay to be different. Let's rejoice together. I mean, look at these statements of joy. Look, read verse 29. The one who is the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom stands and hears him rejoices. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. You know why it's complete? Because it's all about Jesus. And it's finally complete because people are leaving me and they're going to find Christ. And that's why I'm here. The sign that points to Jesus doesn't want people standing and admiring the beauty of the sign. He wants people to go where the sign is pointing. It's the whole purpose. And so he brings it all together in verse 30. He must increase. I must decrease. Three observations on verse 30. Number one, the contrast is between God and man. He and I. He and I. This is always the greatest battle of your life. We say often at community, the hardest truth in your life is to recognize that there is a God and you are not him. And so there will always be a battle between God and self. He and I. There must be a time in your life, and it's different for everybody, but there, that there must be a time or else you're going to live miserable. Maybe, maybe the reason that you're miserable in your Christian life is because this hasn't clicked yet. Maybe it will this morning. There's got to be a time in your life when you realize that it's not about you. 
Like, it's not about whether or not you like church or you like the songs or you like the colors or you like the way that, that God has ordained your life or, or you like your kids, right? Or you like this or you like that or whatever. There has to come a point in your life where you realize that life is not about you. The Bible is not about you. God's world doesn't center around you. God is showing his glory. And this life is all about him. And everything that we do has to be centered around him. And so thus John the Baptist pits he and I. That's the main battle. That's the seesaw here, right? And it should never be level. It should always be God and me. That it's all about him. The contrast is between God and man. Secondly, this humiliation is necessary. It's necessary. He must increase. I must decrease. The Greek word there is, it is necessary for him to increase. I would even argue that this humility is needed and is necessary at the moment of salvation. Why? Because you can't come to salvation saying, here I am, God, I'm so good, aren't you blessed to have me? I'll do it all. But you come in that moment of saying, the only thing that I bring to the table is my sin. And in this moment, God saves me. And faith is the bridge that I cross to get to Jesus. Salvation is through faith, but it's accomplished by Christ. And he says he must increase. In order for this joy to be complete, he must increase. So stop being in competition. Stop being miserable. It's amazing what happens when you just let go of that envy. He must increase. It's necessary. That humiliation that's present at salvation in order to find the joy of your Christian life must continue. It's not about me. Your life, I get news for you, friend. There's not a person in this room that their life turned out like they wanted it to, right? All of us. I mean, can you remember being like 18 and 19 and you're like, oh man, I'm going to take on the world. I got my whole life planned out in front of me. And then all of a sudden you step out into life and you get hit in the face with a sledgehammer, right? Boom! This is not at all what I expected, right? This did not turn out like I planned. And in some ways, praise God that it didn't turn out like I planned. None of us did. Or none of us, none of our lives turn out exactly like we had planned, but it turned out exactly like God has ordained. And so find joy in centering your life around him. I really think this is one of the keys to remaining joyful as you age, of continually remembering that our responsibility is to simply lift up Christ. The third observation here is the inverse relationship that I began with, the seesaw, the speed limit. He must increase. 
I must decrease. Every day, listen carefully, every moment of the day, either Jesus is increasing or you are increasing. Every moment of the day, if God is increasing, self is being abased, being forgotten, or self is being lifted up, often out of envy, and God is lowering. Either you will view this life with you at the center or with God at the center. That's what John is communicating to his disciples here. It's not about me, guys, you missed it. Either God is the center of your life or you are the center of your life. Either you will view scriptures as man-centered or you will view the scripture as God-centered. God existed in eternity past, Father, Son, Spirit, three persons, one essence, in total harmony and complete love without creation, and God doesn't need you. He didn't create you because he's in heaven thinking, oh man, if I just had Johnny on this world, my life would be complete. No. He created you because it gave him glory. He created you so that you can give him glory. Broader Christendom as a whole is so man-centered. What can God do for me? What do I need from God today? Rather than, can you believe that I get to live for the glory of God one more day? Friend, you will find so much freedom in this life when you let go of yourself and embrace God. A healthy church doesn't produce disciples of the church. It produces disciples of Jesus. Listen carefully. Healthy, godly leaders do not produce followers of their teachings. They produce followers of Christ. That's the mark of humility in a godly leader. It's to say, look at Jesus, look at Jesus, look at Jesus. William Carey was a Baptist missionary to India in the 18th and 19th century. His missionary efforts resulted in unbelievable gospel growth. I had the opportunity right after we got married to travel to India with my father-in-law to be a part of a church meeting where there were Christians from all over India, a couple thousand people there. I got an opportunity to preach to the teenagers. It was just an incredible event. Christianity is booming all over India. And it all, all of the Christian movements that are in India can trace their roots back to William Carey, who took the seeds of the gospel, spending 41 years on the mission field without ever coming home for a furlough. He's been referred to as the father of modern missions. He helped found the Baptist Missionary Society. His legacy has had an unbelievable and lasting impact on the church. Go get a, a go buy a biography of William Carey and read it, and you'll be blown away at his passion, at his the depth of his theology that fueled him to see people saved. Later on in his life, 
in the early 19th century, the early 1800s, he became a little bit of a mythical figure back in England because everybody had heard of the tales of the mission field of this mythical man named William Carey who had never been home on furlough. So much so that he became larger than life, kind of a superhero to the church. People would gather relics from his youth. This was William, you know, this was William Carey's first baseball glove. I have it in a, in a shrine in my house. Can you believe it? This is William Carey's, this is the seat that he sat in when he was in school, when he was eight years old. You know, all these things. A cup that he had drunk from, a pair of shoes that he had made or worn. He used to be a cobbler, so people would pay big money for signs or flyers about his cobbler business. William Carey lay on his deathbed in 1834. He brought one of his missionary partners to his side as he was dying, and he whispered the following, Mr. Duff, you have been speaking much about William Carey. When I am gone, say nothing about William Carey. Speak only of William Carey's Savior. Forget me but lift up Jesus. That's the desire of John the Baptist. Chapter 1 tells us that Jesus, as the light of the world, has been inserted into the darkness. And it's as though, as we turn in chapter 3, the light is beginning to dawn on a dark, dark humanity. And if you've ever been out early in the morning on a, on, a, on a clear night that's turning to morning, you'll notice the stars slowly start to disappear. And there's usually one star that's so stubborn, right? And then as the sun comes up, that star slowly goes away and the light comes. And John is saying, I'm that star. My point was to shine so bright in my role. And then when I'm gone, I'm gone. Because the sun is here. And the light shines. John the Baptist was referred, Jesus referred to John the Baptist in Luke chapter 7 and verse 28 as the greatest man who ever lived. And his philosophy was God must increase, I must decrease. Where did it lead John? Well, just a few months after this, John would be imprisoned. And then later, his head would be called for by a very wicked ruler. He would be beheaded. And his head would be taken into a wicked party, celebrated as the death of a prophet, the last Old Testament prophet. But in that moment when his head was removed... He entered into glory to continue the same theme. It's all about God. Everything is about God. To let yourself go and embrace the main character of history. He must increase. I must decrease. Heavenly Father, may this truth be 
evident in all of our lives. That on our deathbed we would say, speak not of our name, but speak only of our Savior. That as individual names are lifted high, so the name of Jesus is diminished. And so may the name of Christ be supreme. May we find joy in the work of the gospel no matter where it is. May we recognize this inverse relationship between you and us. And so may we find ourselves decreasing as you increase.